Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, have you ever tried putting your head in the freezer or setting aside time in your schedule to worry? Those are some of the techniques UCSF sleep scientist Eric Prather recommends you try if you've been struggling to get a good night's rest. We'll learn more about why we can't fall asleep or stay asleep and what we can do. Prather's new book is called The Sleep Prescription, and we want to hear from you. What's got you up at night and what helps you doze off? Email us at forum at kqed.org and we'll talk about it. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim. The midterm elections, the approaching holidays, or just everyday family, work, and school stresses, there's a lot to keep us up at night. So maybe it's not surprising that roughly 70 million Americans have chronic sleep disorders, which can contribute to a range of health problems and damage our quality of life and sense of well-being. This hour, we'll hear how we can start getting a better night's rest with Eric Prather, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, where he co-directs the Aging Metabolism and Emotion Center. His new book is The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me in the studio. Yes, great to have you here. So you note at the outset of the book that you study sleep for a living and that there's one major thing that gets in the way of sleep, and that's ourselves. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, what what tends to happen, particularly when people have, um, you know, chronic insomnia, is that they, you know, make a lot of changes to their life that make sense in the moment to try to get their sleep back, but actually ends up undermining how sleep works. And so what we do in our clinic and what I talk about in this book uh, around cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is really trying to remove those barriers that we've kind of set up for ourselves uh, so that sleep can happen more naturally. And it's not just stress that can keep us up. It's also physical conditions, right? Right. I mean, you know, we need certain things to be in place to be able to sleep well. Um, unfortunately, not everybody gets those things in equal amounts, but, you know, we certainly need darkness. We need quiet. We need a cooler temperature. But, you know, we also need a place that feels safe, right? Like safety is a, a really, really critical and I think underappreciated part of sleep. I mean, sleep. if you think about how sleep works, um, you know, it's not always the most adaptive thing to be able to kind of drop off from the world if the if the place that you're living is unsafe. And so, you know, we really try to 
instill that feeling so that you kind of let go and let sleep happen. Right. And I was actually struck by that point you made about sleep access not being evenly distributed. Will you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's now kind of well-recognized sleep disparities within populations, right? And we know that uh, black Americans get less and kind of less restorative sleep on average compared to white, uh, white adults. And, you know, it's largely driven by kind of structural factors for where people are allowed to live, work and play and sleep. And so, you know, if you live in a neighbor, a neighborhood that is noisy, that has light pollution, that has noise pollution, um, where there's disorder or crime, um, that can absolutely kind of drive differences in population level of kind of sleep, you know, amount and kind of sleep quality. Yeah. And just to also keep grounding us with, you know, how, you know, the science of sleep, let's dig into some of just the common things about falling asleep. So why do we get sleepy? And what's the physical mechanism that's operating there? Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are two primary drivers of what regulates our sleep. Um, the first is one that most people have heard about, um, our circadian rhythm, right? So, you know, we have rhythms and clocks in our cells, in our organs, and it's dr- governed by kind of a master clock in our brain. And it's really sensitive to external stimuli like light. And so I think of our circadian rhythm in the context of sleep as kind of an alerting signal. And so we wake up, the sun kind of shuts down our melatonin production, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more. And then we're alert, you know, we have a little bit of a dip in the mid-afternoon. And then, you know, as the sun goes down, we begin to feel sleepy because melatonin is being produced. Um, The other driver, which is often people haven't heard about, is what's called our homeostatic sleep drive. And I like to think of it as kind of like a a balloon that kind of fills up throughout the day. And so as when we wake up, our balloon is flat. As we go throughout the day and we kind of use energy, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger with sleepiness. And that sleepiness, we think, is this neurochemical in our brain called adenosine. And so adenosine is kind of the metabolite of, of ATP for people who kind of remember their biochemistry. And that builds up in the brain. And when it gets to an optimal level, we begin to feel those sleepiness cues. And then we go to sleep and kind of that, that sleepiness drains out of the balloon. So when the circadian rhythm is well aligned with our homeostatic sleep drive, you know, our balloon is big, our, our alerting signals are low, and we're able to kind of drift off to a good night's sleep. Now, it doesn't always work that way, right? I mean, if you take a nap during the day, you might steal some of that sleepiness, right? And so your balloon needs to take longer to get bigger, you know, or you or there's the daylight savings end and now yes. it shifts our yes. circadian rhythm. Like all of those things kind of create this misalignment that it, in the short term anyway can impact our sleep. Right. And yeah, you bring up daylight savings, which I feel like I just caught up today. No. I just woke up at the time <laughs> I'm supposed to wake up and not the hour earlier, I guess. But um, and the week was kind of tossed up because of that. So and that You've talked about social jet lag before as well. Can you explain what that is since you brought up um, daylight savings? Yeah, social jet lag is is basically uh, a type of jet lag that we um, we create, right? Um, and often it's related to obligations um, in our social calendar or our work hours that impacts our amount of sleep and the timing of our sleep during the week. 
And then we kind of shift it on the weekend, right? And so sometimes it's sleeping in longer. Sometimes it's staying up later and sleeping in longer. And so that creates this kind of circadian mismatch in our body. And it turns out there's kind of growing evidence. And there was a paper out this this past week that showed that social jet lag is actually incredibly common. And, um, you know, independent of someone's sleep debt, which is kind of the making up that sleep during the, the, the weekend um, relative to the week, that shift in timing seems to be a contributor to age-related conditions like cardiovascular disease. So, you know, it seems like there's kind of both a sleep story there, but also a timing of our sleep. And, and that really speaks to the importance of the predictability that our body craves for sleep and keeping kind of a stable schedule so that things just work better. Which leads into kind of the prescription that you have in your book, which is organized into these seven parts, the seven-day prescription, but with no pills. And so I thought we could run through this week-long program that you lay out. And the first thing that you advise is, you know, set our internal clock. So what does this mean? Yeah, so the the setting our internal clock is really about, um, you know, ensuring a stable wake time seven days a week. And that's really important. And again, this is really important for people that have sleep problems, right? Like, I'm not the fun police. I'm not like, oh, you can never sleep in on the weekends because we need, we, you need to keep the, the time. But I mean, if you're having trouble with your sleep, like this is something that you can do. And, and I focus on um, the morning and the wake time because it, it can set in motion things throughout the day, right? Um, you know, some people say, oh, well, shouldn't I keep a consistent bedtime? And for people with insomnia, that's actually can be really problematic, hmm. right? Because, you know, at, you know, so if I tell you or, you know, someone with insomnia, okay, well, you have to be in bed by 10. Okay, that's your bedtime now. And it's 945 and you're not sleepy, you know, right? You're like, that anxiety is going to ramp up. Like, oh, my God, my sleep doctor told me that I need to be in bed by 10. Like, I'm not going to be asleep. What does this mean for my sleep? My sleep's broken. And that can really spiral into this distress that just feeds insomnia, right? But we can control when we wake up, right? And we know that... If we maintain a stable wake time, it'll entrain our circadian rhythm. We use similar amounts of energy across the day. So in the end, you will eventually, over time, get sleepy around the same time each night, right? Like it's just a natural process because of that sleep drive that I talked about. And so it takes the pressure off, but also ensures kind of this stability. Right. And so and you call the circadian rhythms our master clock. Correct. And Correct. so what is if you can just unpack that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So so our circuit so our master clock is it lives kind of deep in our brain in the suprachiasmatic nucleus and it actually helps regulate the other clocks in our body, right? And so um, you know, it 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 basically governs those things but then is driven by kind of external information from the environment. So as I mentioned, sunlight is like probably the biggest one that, um, you know, tells us when we're supposed to be awake. It shuts down the melatonin system, the melatonin being released by the pineal gland in our brain. And then, but there are other things that that help govern this master clock. So, and they're called zeitgebers. And so uh, in particular, mealtimes is one of them. And so, you know, when you're, and, and this is like, if you had to go, um, if you had jet lag, this is like the ways that you would try to fix this is, you know, um, maintaining the meal times in the place that you're going, right? So if you're, you're going to New York, you, even if you're not hungry, you should eat at the time that is meal times there because it'll tell your body what to do because it'll then impact your master clock to kind of get your rhythm synced up. And so for a week like this, that where we are kind of we've had to, to deal and rebound with daylight savings and the time change. 
is there like a certain tip for, you know, because if you're feeling hungry at the norm- normal time that you do, but it's an hour earlier and you're like, oh, wait, I don't normally eat at 5 p.m., but technically it's 6 p.m. You know, what are your tips and how do you, how does your household, for example, kind of adjust to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the the, the end of daylight savings, you know, I think for most people is a little bit easier. Right. I mean, you kind of get, you know, in air quotes, this extra sleep air right. hour of sleep. Um, and and so you know, people tend to adjust, but you're right, people get thrown off. And it really is around kind of trying to address those external things in the environment. Um, you know, I, I have suggested that when we end daylight savings, you know, maybe don't sleep in that whole extra hour, maybe sleep in just a half hour. So you get like a little bit, but you know, it's a little bit closer to the time that you're going to have to deal with. Um, also, uh, eat at the times that are scheduled versus like how you feel. And that might be seal seem strange, yeah. but it's it's just in the service of trying to accelerate this adjustment. And I mean you'll adjust anyway, but it's just one way to do it. The other is um, you know, what happens on um, when we move when we fall back is that people end up getting sleepier earlier, right? And so that's actually the the recommendation is to try to push yourself to to what would be your typical bedtime. And those things which are not unpleasant, but they're not like pleasant things to do, can help accelerate it. For for most people, they just kind of like live with it and they adjust. The spring is more of a, a challenge, right? Because, you know, people are, you know, losing this hour yeah. and there's an increased risk of, of motor vehicle fatalities and all these other things that go along with that. Um, and so, you know, that's a an other set of, of recommendations for that. We're talking with Eric Prather, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF, about his new book, The Sleep Prescription. And we want to hear from you. Do you you usually get a solid night's sleep, or is it patchy? What is interfering with your sleep, and what helps you doze off? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org is the email, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And we'll have more after the break. I'm Ariana Prather and for Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Today we're talking about how to calm our ruminating minds and other techniques to help us get a better night's rest with Eric Prather, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF. And we're talking about his new book, The Sleep Prescription. 
And we're also inviting you, our listeners, to join the conversation. A reminder, you can email your questions for um, Eric Prather at forum at kqed.org. And the number is 866-733-6786. So in your book, you, you say that the intersection between stress and sleep is the work you're most passionate about. Why is that? And kind of what are what's the key kind of part of that relationship that, that, that we might find most fascinating? Yeah. You know, I mean, I... I I came from a background of studying stress physiology, and so, um, and then I discovered that a lot of the, the the challenges that happen when people are stressed, and particularly on, on the impact on their immune system, you see the same things when people have acute sleep loss. And we know that stress and sleep are interrelated to one another, and so it seems strange to me that kind of there are sleep researchers that just focus on sleep, and there's stress researchers that don't fo- just focus on stress, and like, but there there there's these clear bidirectional pathways, and so. Um, over the last you know decade, we've been dry, really trying to unpack that to understand you know when people have insufficient amounts of sleep, are they more sensitive to stress during the day, and what does that look like for their biology? And it, it turns out that you know whether it's experimentally or following people out in the world, it's true that and and clinically, I will say that absolutely when I talk to people when they are not getting the sleep they need, you know little things feel like big things, right? Like the little slings of arrows and arrows of the day are really kind of can be overwhelming. And I think that has, and the research suggests that that has a biological cost. The other thing that I find, you know, really important about that, knowing about that link is it provides two opportunities for intervention, right? We can impact someone's stress, improve their stress management, which might have spillover effects on their sleep. But we also know how to improve people's sleep, which is, you know, what I do in my day to day. And we know that that can actually give people the capacity to better, to be their best selves despite the stress that we honestly can't eliminate completely from our lives. Right. And as I know, a lot of us would associate experiencing stress as our reason for lack of sleep. Is that true or can that relationship go both ways, I guess? It can. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the model of how insomnia develops, there's a precipitating factor and that's usually a stressor. Right. Um, you know, it, it turns out that if you you know, track people's stress across the day and and their sleep at night, most often like the stress that they experience doesn't really feed into their sleep too much. Um, the, the exceptions are if like a really terrible thing happened, um, you know, like you were in a car accident and you'd be thinking about it close to bed or if the stressor happens like right before bed, like you get in an argument with your spouse or, or something like that. You get a really bad email like those things can absolutely get involved with your sleep. The other direction actually is much stronger based on all of the, the research that we have so far that if people don't get enough sleep, then they are much more sensitive to those stressors, even if they're small. And they actually, as, and as I mentioned, they tend to kind of view them as much larger than they would have had they not uh, had a bad night of sleep. And we think that that's because like sleep really delivers so much for our ability to, to think clearly, um, to process information, to regulate our emotions. And so it makes a lot of sense that that would happen that way. Yeah. We actually have a listener question, kind of referenced what we talked about before the break. Uh, they write, I wake up really early and can't fall back asleep, but also feel too tired to get up. I feel like I'm still resting if I stay in bed. But is that wrong? Should I just force myself to get up? Why can't I sleep longer if I feel tired? Yeah, that's a really common problem. And it, it's a really hard one to address. Uh, and 
And part of the reason why it's so hard, and I, I sympathize, I honestly, I empathize because I also have this problem from time to time with, uh, with, with the caller is, um, you know, when we go to sleep, right, we get kind of a big dose of deep sleep, um, right when we go to sleep. And then, and then it kind of, kind of lightens across the night, right? Like as once we get to like those last couple hours, our sleep is pretty fragmented in light. It's a lot of dreaming sleep and things like that. And so people wake up a lot. And so if you have stressors in your life and things, like that's the time when they pop up. If you're like one hour away from get your alarm, it's often probably not the best plan to get up and try to wait till you get sleepy again, right? And we know that rest can be really helpful. Um, you know, it can provide, and oftentimes people kind of go in and out of sleep even though it doesn't feel like it. And so all of that is value added. When we want people to get out of bed is really in the middle of the night, right? Like if you wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, say like two in the morning, three in the morning, um, and you're getting up at seven, then, you know, you probably haven't gotten a sufficient amount of sleep. You probably can get more. And if your mind is racing and you're in bed for like 20 minutes uh, and you still haven't been able to get back to sleep, that's when we say, you know, you want probably want to get out of bed, kind of do something quiet, you know, relaxing until you begin to feel those sleepiness cues and then you want to get back in bed. And, you know, obviously people don't love doing that, right? Like yeah. we, there is like some, right. <laughs> You're right. telling me, I'm just like, eh. <laughs> well, eh. I mean, and I, you know, I mean, maybe we'll have a chance to kind of explain, I mean, and this is part of the, yeah. the, like why cognitive behavioral therapy is so important is actually addressing this part, but it, it does take some convincing, right? Like right. I have to like tell you exactly why this happens because you, you have to buy into it. And it really is super important though, because um, spending a lot of time in bed awake and your mind working really fractures your relationship with the bed. Hmm. The bed is a critical trigger for sleepiness. And so if you spend a lot of time in bed not sleeping, you know, your body gets confused. And and it turn and that actually feeds insomnia. That it, that creates the foundation of what we know of as insomnia disorder. Well, still on the same subject. Let's go to Polly and Concord. Polly, you're on. Hi. Um yeah, I, you know, I have a regular bedtime. I, you know, about 10 o'clock. I actually wake up on my own um, at about 6, 6.30. I don't really set an alarm. But what happens to me is that I go to bed, you know, I, I, I'm sleepy, and then I just lie there wide awake for an hour and a half, two hours, sometimes even longer. So I try, when that happens, I try to do things like meditate, gratitude thought process you know try to think happy thoughts and lovely things instead of focusing on my day ahead or my day behind me do you have any recommendations for somebody like me who just i'm tired yeah. Sleep. Can't sleep. <laughs> so, sounds like you need some more sleep. No, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it sounds like she's done a couple things that yeah. you have recommended the meditation and gratitude journal but what else might be at play here absolutely well so you know i mean this is such a common thing for people to say. And I will say like so often in my clinic, people will come and say, you know, I was feeling really sleepy before when I got in bed and then my mind kind of just woke up. And that is part of this conditioned arousal that I was just mentioning before, this kind of spending too much time in bed that develops a conditioned arousal. And so the first thing I would do in, in this case is I would not spend an hour and a half in bed. Like that is, you know, certainly, you know, you have enough data in your life to tell you like, you're probably not going to fall asleep, right? It's it's like you don't need to wait it out and hope. And that's what happens with insomnia is people are are so 
sleep has become so unpredictable that they really just want to be in the right place at the right time because it's not clear when it's going to happen, right? And so it makes a lot of sense to get in bed even earlier than you maybe maybe should and and hope for the best, you know, because if you're only getting five hours of sleep, but, you know, you're spending three extra hours awake, you want to give yourself that eight hours in bed so that you can get that five hours. But that actually undermines how sleep works. And so what I would say first off is, you know, don't get – I actually – if you were in our clinic, I would – you know, we would keep a sleep diary and we would track this and then we'd give you like a prescription on kind of when your bedtime is. And my guess is that it's actually too early right now that we actually want to push it later until we regulate your sleep better. Because, you know, it sounds like you've potentially fractured this relationship with the bed. I would, you know, not get in bed unless you're sleepy. And if you wait 20 minutes and you're still not asleep or 30 minutes for you, I would get out of the bed, kind of just do something quiet um, do the, th- the things that you're doing are great things, but maybe you need to switch it up, right? Like sometimes the reset can be helpful. Like, so, you know, maybe you listen to music, maybe you listen to, um, you know, archived episodes of the forum, like maybe you, um, you know, watch television that you've seen before that you don't need to worry about like what what's going to happen at the end, things to kind of distract your mind, wait till you get sleepy, let those natural sleepy cues kind of like build up, and then get in bed. My guess is that you probably want to push your bedtime back later at least an hour, maybe longer, um, until you begin to have more regulated sleep. But, um, you know, there could also be other things going on um, that is, that's hard to kind of ascertain from this. But that would be the, the, first, the first steps. Okay. Thanks for that call, Polly. So another aspect of your book, you mentioned revenge bedtime procrastination, which I found really interesting because I may have acted that out on occasion without realizing that's what it is. So first, can you describe what that is and kind of how that would affect our sleep? Yeah, revenge, bedtime procrastination. You know, it's 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 kind of developed into a like a, a thing that a lot of people experience. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we don't have enough time in our day. We don't have the autonomy that we need and, and I would argue deserve um, around our time. And so, you know, what people do is as a way of kind of doing things for themselves, that me time that we crave and we need will skimp on sleep, right? We'll like be like, I'd rather stay up and do these things that I've been wanting to do that I enjoy because as a way of kind of compensating for the fact that during the day, you just don't, the time is not your own, right? right? And so that kind of shrinks the sleep opportunity, Right. And it it kind of comes in line with this idea that for some patients that we've seen, um, you know, people don't necessarily have a nighttime problem. They have a daytime problem. And that Mm. daytime problem is, you know, they're 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 filling too many things in their day and they're just not allowing for this important transition to sleep. I you know, one of the most common problems is that, you know, people use sleep as like the last thing on their to do list once everything else is done. Right. And that is the wrong way to think about it. Sleep kind of makes us our best selves, right? When we get the sleep we need, we're better partners, we're better parents, we're more creative, we're more productive, we're more empathetic, we're more able to deal with stress, and our health is better. And so it's critical to invest in getting that sleep. And that means kind of building in time, right? Like that transition time. And, you know, when people do kind of, revenge bedtime procrastination, it may kind of skimp on that transition time and ultimately lead to less efficient or restorative sleep. Yeah. And one of, you know, your your chapters is about, you know, easing off the gas. And 
and when you're talking about also kind of this, the wind down process, and you know, there's a difference between kind of low arousal and kind of high arousal activities um, that you might be doing. And you've been describing some of them, but like where you know, I, you know, like myself, sometimes it's like a crossword or things that might act, act, be activating my brain. Is that for me, it might feel a little calming, but is that actually something that's not recommended to be doing at bedtime? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, I mean, you're right. So, you know, I think in general, I, I like to talk about sleep as, you know, sleep is universal, but it's also really personal, right? Like there are things that are special about you that, you know, will dictate what things you need to do, right, for your sleep. I mean, we know how sleep biology works. These principles kind of work for, for most people in most instances. But the, but those kinds of things are a little bit more personal for what, what you like. Um, you know, so, you know, in picking a wind down activity, yeah, I do make the distinction between kind of high versus low arousal and like negative, positively valence things, right? So we're, we're looking for kind of positive arousal or positive valence, like things you like, and like low arousal, so kind of calming. And for some people, right, like doing a crossword puzzle is, uh, you know, engaging, but relaxing. For others, they're like, I'm not going to bed until I finish this. Yeah. Like, I don't, I, I you know, <laughs> and, and that's, that's not what we're shooting for. Okay, right? got like, it. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, I, I used to think like, I used to think reading was a thing. Like that was, that would put everyone out. Because for me, it's like two pages and I'm like, nope, I'm done. Got to go to sleep. But, you know, I had all these, these, these patients where they were like, no, I haven't been sleeping at all, but I got through 10 books this week. And I'm like, whoa, you know, and we need to really need to think about, like, hmm. what are the things for you? Because, you know, it's clearly not this because we want something that isn't engaging, that is relaxing, that kind of increases that parasympathetic nervous system to allow you to let go and get to sleep. Well, let's go to another caller. We have Topher in San Francisco. Topher, you're on. Hi, I'm someone who's always slept really well. I sleep like a log and I have great dreams, but I work at a big company where they require new employees to work late hours. And I've noticed I'm 65, super active. But the people that are new, the women particularly in childbearing years, put on like 60 pounds mm. within the first year of working there because I know melatonin is suppressed with bright light late in the night when you're not supposed to be around it. And I think it can really hurt people's reproductive uh, hormone production and all that. And I worry about it because I see people's moods change. I don't think they can handle stress well other health issues, diabetes, you know, whatever. And so for me, I'm thinking when a company's paying health insurance for their employees and then they require this of their employees, it seems not so, just crazy. And I also wanted to say that I think a lot of people cannot metabolize caffeine at all. And they don't know that. And they should just stop drinking it at all. And they wouldn't have a problem. And it's the last thing they think about because they say, oh, I only have one cup in the morning. But I think a lot of people can't handle it at all. Well, thank you, Topher, for you brought up a, a couple different points. I know caffeine is one, you know, that was going to bring up as well. But did you have any thoughts on, on what she on the other comments yeah. she brought around work? And yeah, Topher, amen, around the, the kind of work policy issue. Um, that is a challenge. And that's actually a really great example of where you can have these top down policies that can really invest in sleep health, just particularly because we know how important it is to to, for health and well-being, but also productivity. Um, you know, related to that, I mean, I there are a lot of things that we do know about um, insufficient amounts of sleep and what it does to our metabolism, right? We know that um, it can change how our cells respond to insulin. Um, it can absolutely change our appetite. 
Um, our satiety hormones become dysregulated. Uh, people, when they don't get the sleep they need, shift their preferences for types of foods that they want to consume. So people will tend to kind of choose the high fat, high sugar foods. Um, and that's just, you know, that's something that we, we you know, clearly can contribute to weight gain um, and, you know, can really put people on a, on a path towards kind of ill health. We have a couple comments. Mary writes, I'm in my 60s and I wake up at 3 a.m. No problem going to sleep initially. I've been told I have good, quote, sleep hygiene. What to do for this type of insomnia? And Melissa tweets, I'm a 51-year-old perimenopausal woman. Sleep is the thing I miss most about my youth. I have no trouble falling asleep, but an adrenaline surge wakes me up around 3 3 a.m. every night. Any supplements you recommend? Or would you, is it your sleep no. prescription? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, so I think, you know, one thing is, right, like waking up in the middle of the night is hard. It happens more as we get older. It happens more for women. Some of it is related to horm- hormones and, and certainly in the kind of postmenopausal transition, we see that as well. Um, you know, the, the question around the adrenaline surge kind of perked my ears up. So one of the things that... Um, often goes unrecognized, uh, particularly in women, is uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And so obstructive sleep apnea is, is basically kind of a respiratory issue where, you know, you, you cease breathing during the night. But what it does is it also kind of drops your oxygen saturation and kind of gives you this sympathetic surge, right? So one of the symptoms that people report is this kind of feeling of kind of their heart racing when they wake up. And uh, you know, I mean, certainly it requires more information to kind of go down that road. But if that if you're feeling kind of run down during the day, you're waking up and you're having that experience, then you might want to at least bring it up to your doctor. Or if you have a partner, someone to check in on you to see if you are snoring and, and those sorts of things, because it's very addressable. And it, but unaddressed um, can actually kind of put you on the road to a lot of negative health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about how to get a better night's rest uh, with Eric Prather, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF. His new book is The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. And we're hearing from you, our listeners, questions you have for Eric Prather, whether you usually get a solid night's rest, what's interfering with your sleep, um, advice that you're looking for. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org and give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. I'm Ariana Prale, and for Mina Kim, more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. This hour, we've been talking about how to get a better night's rest with Eric Prather, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF. His new book is The Sleep Prescription. And one of your prescribed um, chapters in the book is to worry early. And this is your recommendation for dealing with rumination and kind of thoughts. So one, can you talk about what rumination really looks like for for folks who struggle with that? And then why you recommend to worry early? Yeah. yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, I think two things that happen commonly in the middle of the night with respect to kind of our how our kind of thoughts are generated as we either worry about kind of things that are happening, you know, in our lives, things that are happening tomorrow, um, worrying about the fact that we're not sleeping, or will ruminate. And that's usually about, it's about things in the past, like things I wish I'd done differently. Yeah. You know? Oh, I wish I'd said that. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, I actually did that. And yeah. you're just replaying it over and over. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, un- unfortunately, right, like our, when we're in the middle of the night, our brains will fill that vacuum with that. They never fill it with, oh, that really great experience, that time it went perfect, you know, and, and reliving those positive moments. It's always these kind of negatively flavored experiences. And so, you know, one way to try to address that, and, you know, I didn't, you know, come up with this idea. This is something that is kind of built into cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, but it's actually scheduling out worry time, right? And and it's kind of making it, it's, it's adding it, one, it's adding it to your to-do list, which, you know, is not easy for anybody, but it's in the service of trying to sleep better to kind of take some of that power, that sting out of the worrying that you would maybe do in the middle of the night. So what we suggest is, you know, you know, find 15 minutes in your day where you just sit down and you just worry. Worry about whatever it is, but it's your time to worry about those things and it's not for anything else, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have anything to worry about, you still sit the 15 minutes and try. And what that seems to do is one, it kind of takes this the power out of it a little bit. It gives you time to think about it when you're in a better state than you are in the middle of the night when when things are, you know, seem more catastrophic. But also when you wake up in the middle of the night and those start to kind of trickle in, you say, like, look, no, I, I did this earlier today and I have it scheduled for tomorrow. So I'm gonna push this into that that kind of parking lot of like worry time. Um, when I'm kind of better suited, and if you if you do that consistently, it tends to kind of improve the the ch- the chances that you're able to get back to sleep. And what is it that makes problems loom so large in our heads at night or kind of first thing in the morning in that kind of rest space? Gosh, that, I mean, that's a great great philosophical question. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I I think I think our 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 default, I don't, our default is to, is is that it seems like it's it's a it, it might be the way that we approach things, but I also think it's adaptive hmm. in some ways to think about the things that are undone. I mean, the ruminations not so much, although people can learn from those mistakes. But kind of the worries, the things that we need to address, it would make sense that those would kind of be up front in the queue, and because we have this kind of quiet time. And, you know, but we're also in the context of the stressors around us. Maybe that's why they they pop up more readily. Mm. Well, let's go to another caller, Arlinda in Oakland. Arlinda, you're on. Hi. I have a question about people who have to uh, split their sleep, sleep up between, like, the afternoon and the evening. For example, let's say you've got musicians. 
who want an afternoon nap because they're going to be, you know, playing late into the evening. And then you've got, you know, people in the cultures of like Spain or Portugal who maybe take afternoon naps so they can Siesta. stay up later. In. Yep. How do, it, it, it seems like from reading Matthew Walker's book that that breaks up the sleep cycle and uh, can be negative for human health. I'd like your perspective on that, please. Yeah, thanks for your question, Arlinda. So essentially getting at napping, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, getting at... So, you know, I, I take the approach that kind of napping on its own isn't necessarily a bad thing. We know that naps can make people feel more alert. It can, um, you know, help with learning and cognition because we know that sleep is so critical for that. Um, but and, and the siesta culture, it really is in line with kind of that circadian dip that we have in the afternoon, mm-hmm. right? This like dip in our alerting signal. So it makes sense that there would be a nap at that time. Um, but what you also see in those cultures is you know, they do things a lot later, right? They go to bed later, they eat dinner later, like all those things are shifted. And I think for me, it it makes a lot of sense because you can only make so much sleep, right? And so, uh, you know, if you're going to s- kind of snack before dinner, so to speak, and kind of take some of that sleepiness out of that balloon that was building, you shouldn't expect that you're going to have the same amount of sleep at night. And so if people do that and they're at least as long as it doesn't create distress, because that's the problem that we often find is that, you know, people that have insomnia, they'll nap because they feel so bad. But then they're so, you know, dumbfounded that like at night their sleep is kind of <laughs> kind of not well consolidated. Right. right. And it's like, well, you know, you can only make so much like hmm. maybe this is some place to address it. And it makes sense, like on the day to day basis where you're feeling so terrible that you would want to get that little bit of sleep. And so there's no kind of shame in it. It's just kind of thinking about the the costs and benefits of of these things. Now, the idea of that kind of broken up sleep might have a cost for health. Um, that's a, that's a different one. That's a really interesting question. I mean, some of that is is hard to tease apart because oftentimes naps can be a symptom of something going on, right? So it can actually be confounded with the idea that like you know people that have to take naps more often, maybe they're older, maybe they have comorbidities that actually are predicting their health and the outcome, and the nap is just the symptom. And so we're really trying to still tease that apart. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely am in favor of people really need a nap, they should take it. But if you're having trouble sleeping, it might be something that you want to consider uh, removing if you can. And what time frame of a nap do you think is, in, in your eyes, is most healthy, I guess, for, for people's schedules? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for kind of, so, so most people tend to take them in the early afternoon, again, with this circadian dip type thing. If you're taking them earlier in the morning, um, you know, it may be a sign that something else in your sleep is going on. And, and that's, you know, a consequence of that. And so we should, should work on it. But um, as far as duration, typically, you know, people get kind of good success, like a 20-minute nap. Um, when you get kind of over 30 minutes, uh, you run the risk of, of kind of dropping into deep sleep, kind of that slow wave restorative sleep, which is important. But, you know, coming out of it ends up making people feel kind of way worse than they did before they took the nap. So that's something called sleep inertia. And so that, you know, that can really kind of impact the rest of your day if you're kind of stuck in this grogginess. And so if you keep it short, um, it, it, it seems to be fine. Um, if you're going to do one at all. Yeah, that actually happened to be on Wednesday, but it felt so good. I was like, ooh, that was a deep sleep. But yeah, thank you for explaining why I felt so groggy after. <laughs> uh, let's go to another caller, Paul in Alameda. Paul, you're on. Hey, good morning. Great show. Thanks. Love the topic. I have a question on kids and melatonin chews. Um, we've got a night owl in our family who would be happy to be up till 930 every night, but the family kind of kids sleep routine really starts at eight. So 
we have used melatonin to get him to go to sleep at that time. And we've also seen how happy he is to stay up a little later and kind of go to sleep on his own. So, you know, should we honor his innate circadian rhythms or, you know, keep him on the melatonin so he goes to sleep on the family schedule? Hmm, great question, Paul. It's a great question, Paul. And, and uh, you know, I, I so, I mean, the good news is that melatonin seems to be pretty effective for a lot of kids. Um, and there doesn't seem to be uh, much risk in that. Um, you know, obviously work with your pediatrician and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, you know, and, and it's different than with adults because like melatonin is not uh, particularly effective in treating insomnia, though it's, it's routinely used. And so, you know, I, I think whether you want to use a melatonin to kind of get your child on your schedule and, or let them stay up later to kind of their regular rhythm, you know, has a lot of factors and a lot of kind of like values that I don't want to kind of like overlay on this conversation. One of the challenges that happens when, um, you know, kids get continue to have this delayed sleep phase that you're describing is that it pushes up against school start times, right? And we're trying, you know, you know, ardently in the sleep community to kind of advocate for later school start times, particularly in middle school and and uh, high school. But there's little movement happening um, in elementary school. And so in that instance, you might want to, you know, I would imagine kind of wanting to to use the melatonin to allow your child to get more sleep if you have to maintain a, a stable wake time for, for school. We're getting a couple other comments of night routines. Amy writes, for the most part, I sleep well, but for times when I can't get to sleep or the times I wake up in the middle of the night, I use listen, I use easy listening podcasts. The Moth Radio Hour and other storytelling podcasts are the best. I relax and seem to lull into the storytelling and drift off almost every time. And Noelle writes, I take five milligrams of a cannabis chocolate bar. I've tried melatonin, valerian, and Ambien. No morning grogginess. Since legalization, I am so grateful that I could use this. A good night of sleep is the best thing ever. Um, yeah, cannabis products seem there are some that are very specific toward sleep. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, cannabis products, you know, but whether THC or CBD, um, there. I mean, the the challenge for us in the sleep community is there's just not. Um, really good, rigorous, randomized clinical trials, to, which is kind of the evidence base that we use to make recommendations. But it's it's not because we you know we don't recognize that they probably work um, in some instances, though maybe others do not. It's it's because unfortunately most most of the funding that we get to do research is from the federal government, and currently it's not legal federally, and so there's just it's very challenging to test this. In California, they have a big initiative. Um, trying to put money into um, doing cannabis research for lots of different c- topics. Uh, but even then, just getting the, you know, you can only get kind of certain formulations. And then the challenge is like, okay, you get this formulation, you find that it's effective, but it's a formulation that they don't sell, mm-hmm. you know, that's like not at a store. And so then what do you do? Do you recommend just some other one because you think it's probably good enough? Like that's that's the challenge. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly on the fence because I think it, it is it probably for a lot of people is effective, though, you know, my stance is, you know, I worry about kind of the psychological dependency on these things that, you know, what happens when you don't have it? Like, are you going to have this terrible rebound insomnia? And if so, are there behavioral things that we can do to get your sleep back on track so that you don't even think about taking, you know, a, a cannabis chocolate? Right. 
A listener asked, could the doctor address 3 a.m. wake-ups that are not related to sleep apnea? Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, like, I, I, I know them well. I think we all do. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes people just wake up because we wake up a bunch of times during the night. Like, most people wake up around five times per night. Maybe we remember one. Maybe we remember two. Um Oftentimes, as we get older, it's to use the bathroom. And but and so that in the wake ups on their own are, are not problematic. It's the getting back to sleep. Right. And so if you wake up at three in the morning and it's hard to get back to sleep and it, ta- you know, that's where you want to try to institute some of these strategies. So getting you know, up, of getting up or and then kind of doing the, like I, the moth podcast. That's a great one. That one's like a definitely one that I could see could help lull people to sleep. Um, and so, or, you know, we do a lot of work, uh, you know, suggesting things like meditation, right? There's meditation apps like Headspace or Calm or what have you that, that seem to be really effective in kind of calming the nervous system and allowing people to drift back off. But, um, you know, y- you want to try to see what works for you. You don't want to spend a lot of time kind of awake in bed, stewing in the fact that you're not sleeping. But, um, you know, what, what you do is, is really kind of, it's about producing the feeling. Mm. We're talking with Eric Prather about his book, The Sleep Prescription. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Well, let's try and squeeze in one more call. Uh, Dizon in Petaluma, you're on. Oh, hi. Thank you so much. Um, one thing I haven't really heard discussed is sort of an evening routine prior to going to bed. It's something that our pediatrician actually with our children was really adamant about, you know, you have a hot bath, you put your pajamas on, and it's something that that I do, you know, hot bath, maybe some Epsom salt, lavender, sort of to um, preemptively uh, let your body know that next step is you're going to go to bed and go to sleep. And I'm just wondering if the doctor could speak to any, any uh, research or other recommendations on um, a nightly routine. Yeah, and that is part of your book. And we did touch on a little bit with certain things that kind of get to your low arousal calming state, right? Yeah, but I mean, I think, you know, the caller, absolutely right. And and I really think of it, it's it's like about the ritual, right? Mm-hmm. It's accuse your yeah. body, right? So you, yeah, I mean, you want to kind of like maybe dim the lights, <clears throat> have a time that you typically do it. Um, and I mean, the, the, the hot bath is nice because that actually um, helps when you get out of the bath. It'll help cool your body temperature. And, you know, which is necessary for dropping into into sleep and having a good night's sleep. But it's really about finding these things that are cues in the environment. And so, you know, whether it's putting your pajamas on or kind of cozying up on the couch with your partner or what have you, those sorts of things kind of tell your body what's going to happen next. And the more predictably you do those rituals, you know, the more, you know, on in line, everything's going to work. And so carving out that transition and having a consistent pattern is just critical. Just things just work better when it's predictable. Yeah. So in your conclusion, yeah. right. oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for the call. <laughs> um, so I was just saying, in your conclusion, you invite people to think about the long-term cultural project of sleep. And you call out you know, our productivity-driven culture. And it made me think of Trisha Hersey's work with her nap ministry, yeah. um, which preaches that rest is resistance to our grind culture, exploitative systems. And she invites people to reflect on what it would be you know, to live in a well-rested world. Um, and you know, this is science that we, we've been talking about, but it's also about our values as a society and as people, right? I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question. And also, we'll also 
plug the Rest is Resistance book because it's incredible and she's incredible. And the NAP ministry has done so many great things. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that um, sleep sleep is something that unites us. It's such a universal biological imperative. It's kind of the glue that holds our lives together, um, but often is kind of cast aside um, in in the kind of trying to produce more, to do more. Um, and I think that that is a disservice to the health and well-being. It can really fracture communities. It can, you know, in, you know, as I mentioned earlier, kind of populations are um, kind of shorted on sleep. Uh, and, and there are so many structural factors that drive that. And so I've really, you know, tried to, th- I think about sleep and sleep opportunity as kind of a social justice mission. Like everyone deserves the right to rest. And, um, you know, and I think the things in this book can can help get people back on the right track. But there's obviously kind of upstream factors that need to be part of the conversation to put everyone in the position to be able to sleep well. Yeah, because it's it is interesting how sometimes it gets worn as like a badge of honor, like, oh, I only needed four hours of sleep or I hardly get any sleep and I work so hard. But it's. No, we, sh- we should also be praising ourselves for sleeping well and getting, a, you know, a good night's rest. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think there is a shift. I, I'd like to I mean, over the 10 years that I've been doing this or so, like there does seem to be a shift in like the collective consciousness around like the importance of sleep. Some of this is driven by technology and people like being really interested in their data. But I mean, I also think there's a really uh, good opportunity for um, policy changes Right, whether it's around school start times or daylight savings or kind of how you help work schedules, you know, commute times, uh, work sh- night shift stuff, all of those things have should be, you know, policies that might put people in a better position to do the things they need to do to get the rest they need. Well, thank you, Eric Prather, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF. His new book is The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Catherine Monahan and Susie Britton for producing this segment. This Hour of Forum is produced by Caroline Smith and Grace Wan. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer, and Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, and Chris Beal. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I've been Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim, who's back on Monday. And we're going to go out listening to Rest Life by Trisha Hersey. Give you some restful vibes for the weekend. This is Warm. A portal opens when we rest. When we nap. When we stop. When we sleep. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.